John chapter 12 and verse number 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And I love this part, and we'll talk about it later. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, of course, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then he, this he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Verse 7, but Jesus said, and this is really important, let her alone, she has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you have not with you always. And then Galatians 2 and verse 20, just one verse, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Father, thank you for your presence today. Thank you, Lord, that we're not alone, that no matter what we face, no matter what we go through, you have promised, even in the deepest, darkest hours of our lives, to walk with us. As a matter of fact, you promised that even through the valley of the shadow of death, you will go with us, and we need not fear. So I pray, Lord, today, if there are those who are feeling anxiety or fear or nervousness, Lord, that you would remove that and replace it with a peace of God that transcends human understanding. And I ask, God, that you would challenge our hearts today through your word Lord, we need to change. The people of God need to pursue you more passionately and walk with you more deeply. I need a deeper relationship with you. We all do. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us and challenge us to make that which is eternal the priority, to make that which is lasting preeminent. Pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts today. Let your anointing that comes only through your grace rest upon my life, not because I have earned it, because it's a gift of grace. And I pray, God, that it would rest upon my life so that I can rightly divide your word and communicate your truth in this hour and in this moment, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began the series of Detached. The way to a deeper walk with Jesus and its theme is really the discipline of fasting. It's not something we talk a lot about in the church anymore. Uh, every year in January, and we'll do it again this year, we will encourage our congregation to engage 21 days of fasting and prayer. And for those of you who weren't here last week or maybe haven't been around in January, we don't Everyone kind of engages that at different places. Some will fast a day, a, a day a week or two days a week or a meal a day, and some will fast the whole time or maybe just a week. But we encourage everybody to be involved in that at some level. But I wanted to give some backstory to that, a little context to why fasting is important. And so this series is, is a series specifically designed to help us understand why we need to fast 
and how fasting can be so beneficial in our lives. I shared with you three or four things last week. Number one, just to kind of review what we said, fasting was an ordinary discipline of the early church. The first century church did it. It was not something that maybe they did, maybe they didn't. They were instructed by Jesus. He said, when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast, it was something that the early church practiced. It was one of their disciplines. And fasting simply means to not eat for a specified time and then to utilize that time that I would normally be preparing the food or eating the food to spend time communing with Jesus, reading his word, praying, and getting closer to him. Secondly, we learned that uh, consistent times of fasting is a powerful way of detaching from the world. And I will just tell you, your pastor needs to detach from the world And you all need to detach from the world every once in a while. We get so mucked up with all the stuff that's going on and it makes us nervous and anxious and we're glued to the television and we're worried about everything and we are so controlled by the world and we need to detach from that because the world is passing away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away. And we need to be people that are locked in, detached from the world so that we can attach to Jesus and grow in him more deeply. I asked the question last week, let me ask again, how many would honestly say you could stand to grow a little deeper in your relationship with Jesus, all right? And the only way that's gonna happen is for us to spend a little time detaching from the world so that we can draw closer to him. Romans 12 and verse two says, be not conformed to this world or the cosmos, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Listen, if you spending all your time in the world and listening to the world and hearing the world scream at you, the world is going to shape your mind and thinking. That's why Paul says, don't let it but be transformed by the renewing of your mind by spending time in the presence of Jesus. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world or the cosmos. For he that loves the world, the love of the Father cannot be in him. So it's important that we occasionally detach so that we can draw closer to Jesus. When I detach from the world, thirdly, I'm able to hear the voice of Jesus that we read in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and I will sup with him or fellowship with him and he with me. Those words of Jesus are not spoken to sinners. They are spoken to the church at Laodicea, believers who had become so lukewarm that they didn't even know the voice of Jesus. And Jesus is knocking at the door saying, I'd like to spend a little time with you. I'd like for you to shut off the television a little while and spend a little time with you. That's what he's saying to us. And if we are so shaped by the world that we're not spending any time with Jesus, we will be completely ineffective in bringing light to a dark world. So I'm able to hear the voice of Jesus. And as I detach from the world through fasting, I find myself doing what Jesus did and experiencing the victory that Jesus experienced. When Jesus was fasting, We talked about it last week in Luke chapter 4. Satan came and tempted him with three temptations. The first one was to turn the stones into bread. Do it yourself. Provide for yourself. We so often think that we've got to do it ourselves and we don't trust God. And Satan was tempting Jesus to forget the Father's plan and try to make it happen himself. But because he fasted, he was able to withstand that fleshly or human tendency. Secondly, Satan came to Jesus and tried to get him to get caught up in the idols of the world. Look at all of these things. I will give them to you, Satan said, if you'll just worship me. 
But Jesus said, it's written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou worship. But because he had fasted, he was able to turn away and push back that desire to lay hold of the idols of the soul. Everybody look at me for just a moment. We all are tempted with soul idols. We want to be popular. We want to be known. We want to be famous. We want to be successful. We want to be wealthy. We want our children to be the best. And those become soul idols that if we don't detach from them, we will go after those instead of pursuing the presence of Christ more deeply. So we're able to detach from soul idols. And then thirdly, as Jesus stood against Satan, he was able to resist the bend toward pride or self-exaltation. It was the lust of the flesh, turn the stones to bread, the lust of the eyes, I'll give you all these kingdoms and the pride of life. Show yourself great. Throw yourself down. Watch the angels pick you up so everybody will be impressed. And all of us have that tendency to want to be seen. But fasting enables us to detach from that. And as Jesus did, have victory over Satan who tempts us to do those things. Fasting is a powerful way to detach from a world that deceives us and seeks to destroy us. Today I want to discuss a second reason, not just detaching from the world, but a second reason why fasting is important. And that is that it helps us detach from a stagnant or a dormant relationship with Christ. I want you to think about that word dormant for just a moment. Here's what dormant means. It means having no current or flow and often having an unpleasant smell as a consequence. Uh, if you have played golf, you have, unless you're just amazing, you have uh, landed a few golf balls in a few ponds. How many have ever hit a golf ball in a pond a time or two? All right, many of those ponds, I one time did four in a row. I was so stubborn, I just kept hitting, and I hit four in a row, and the next thing I probably should have done was throw the golf clubs in there, but I, I didn't. But um, if you've been on a golf course, and, and there are many pods on the golf course that have no outflow. They only, they sit there and they retain water, and those are the ponds that stink. They have this horrible smell. Things are growing in them, and it's because there's no inflow into those ponds. There's a whole lot of Christians that don't really have anything going on. They, they got saved 1974, and they wrote it in their Bible, and that's as far as they ever went. They never received anything new. They never given anything out. They think they have fire insurance, so they won't go to hell. That's all they're really thinking about, and, um, and they, they stink. There's a stench about them. They have a dormant relationship with God. We need to detach from stagnancy and a dormant walk with Christ. There needs to be vitality in our relation with him. Somebody say amen if you believe that. Jesus said in John chapter 7, if any man thirst, let him come after me. And out of his belly, Jesus said, will flow rivers of living water. There will be a life of vitality. Christians ought to be providing vitality in this world, not this stagnant, dormant walk with Christ that doesn't help anyone. And fasting is a way to pull away and detach from that dormant or that stagnant walk with him. There's nothing vibrant or living or active in the lives of many Christ followers. Too often it's a cerebral faith. I believe, I have knowledge, but that's as far as it goes. 
It's not effective Christianity. It won't change the world. Let me show you what the expectations of Jesus are. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul says, we are, look at me, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. He expects us to walk in good works and accomplish things for him. In James chapter 2 and verse number 26, James says, faith without works is dead. If there's nothing going on there except I just have this cerebral faith and I call myself a Christian and I carry a card that says I'm a member of a church but I'm not vital in my walk with him, it is dormant, it is stagnant relationship with him. The expectation of God is that there is a vitality, a vibrancy in our relationship with him. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, the other verse that I read, I've been crucified with Christ. Look at this. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. There are too many Christians that are living their life based on the news cycle and what's happened and what's going to happen and what might happen instead of living their life by faith in the Son of God. Amen, Pastor Kevin, that's true. This is how believers are supposed to live their lives. There is to be a vibrancy. There is supposed to be a a life that flows out of this, but sadly, too often we are stagnant or dormant in our walk with Him. Without this vibrancy, without this intensity, you won't make it through difficult times. We need to rekindle that that passion, that life, that vitality. And fasting is a way we detach from that dormant walk with him and say, God, I want some vitality in my spiritual walk again. David Kinnaman, who was an associate of George Barna, they did a lot of work together, wrote several books together, also wrote a book with Mark Matlock called uh, Faith for Exiles. In this book, they studied young people who had grown up in the church and um, some that had stayed and some that had drifted. And uh, they, they tried to look at the difference. What, what, was the, what were the factors that, that led, and, and they called the ones that had stayed those who were resilient disciples. They had, they had pressed on. They, when they were young people, it, it was part of their life to really be pursuing Christ. And they compared the two groups and they found out that in their relationship with Christ, those who had stayed would say that their relationship with Christ when they were young brought them joy, 90% of them as compared to only 48% of the others. Those that had stayed, the resilient disciples said that their Christianity shaped their life, their body, their mind, their heart, their soul, 88% compared to 51% of the others. And these resilient disciples said that, that their relationship with Christ and their understanding the word of God actually shaped the way they lived every day, 86% of them as compared to 49%. In other words, they took it seriously. They said, this is not just a, to stamp a card and have a membership card. This is a walk. This is a relationship with Christ. And when it became a relationship with Christ, they stayed. If, if you're not having a relationship with Christ, when things get hard, you drift away. 
If our young people don't know Christ, I mean know him, not just go to youth group and have a little bit of fun, but if they don't know him, they will drift as soon as things get difficult unless we press in and have a vibrant relationship with Christ. Fasting helps us to develop that vibrant faith. It helps kindle that intimacy. It redeems us from the dormant and lifeless spirituality that plagues so many who call themselves believers. The life I live, Paul said, I live by faith in the Son of God. I'm living a vital life because the Son of God that I have faith in, listen, let me tell you, if you're living your life by faith in the Son of God, let me tell you where your faith is directed. Your faith is directed to one who spoke the world into existence, the one who caused the Red Sea to divide, the one who raised the dead, who did miracles, the one who sustains and upholds the worlds by the word of his power, the one that causes kings to rise and puts them down, that's if you're living your life by faith in the Son of God, there's no reason for a heavy head or droop shoulders because you're living your life by faith in the one who's got this whole thing under control. Will somebody say amen if you believe that? That's the vibrancy that ought to be existing in the life of believers, but sadly, too often it is not. Macrina Whitaker said this about fasting. Fasting makes me vulnerable, and it reminds me of my frailty. It reminds me to remember that if I am not fed, I will die. So standing before God hungry, I suddenly know who I am. I'm one who is poor but called to be rich in a way that the world doesn't understand. I'm one who's empty, who's called to be filled with the fullness of God. I'm one who's hungry, who's called to taste all the goodness that can be mine in Christ. You see, fasting reminds us really who we are. We're dependent on someone else. We're dependent on someone to feed us. We're dependent on spiritual life. The life I now live, Paul said, I don't live in my own strength. I live by faith in the Son of God. And fasting is a reminder to me that I'm dependent upon God and his life. Let me take you to John 12. That was a long introduction. These points are pretty quick. Let me just kind of sum up John chapter 12 and share with you three important principles. There are several instances in the Gospels where there is a woman that anoints Jesus. Um, this is one of those in John chapter 12. This is, not all of them are the same story. This is the parallel account, most likely to the one that we read in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. Jesus has just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. How, how many think that was a pretty big deal, to raise somebody from the dead who had been dead four days, who was already stinking, by the way. Don't you love how the Bible throws that in there? By now, he stinketh. I love that. That's King James. And, and so he raised him from the dead, and because he raised him from the dead and he just rocked the religious people's world and their paradigm and what it looked like to be godly, and they were so ticked off at Jesus that they really ramped up their efforts to kill him. And so the Bible says that, that Jesus in, in John 11 has retreated to the wilderness village of Ephraim, and there he has stopped his public ministry and he stayed for a few days in Ephraim. But as the Passover approached, he made his way to Bethany. Bethany was a little small community about two miles east of Jerusalem. It uh, sat on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus went to Bethany where his friend <laughs> that he had just raised from the dead, Lazarus, lived with his two siblings, Mary and Martha. 
And most people believe that Jesus spent that entire last week, the Passion Week, in Bethany, and every day he would travel the two miles into Jerusalem, he would teach, and he would go back, and he would spend the evening in Bethany at the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. So Jesus is on his way to the cross. He knew that in a short day, a short few days, he would agonize in Gethsemane, and then ultimately he would be crucified on the cross. And in this narrative, it's a short narrative, but in these eight verses, there is some instruction about what vibrant faith and its antithesis, stagnant or dormant faith, really looks like. So how do we gauge the vibrancy of our faith? I want you to ask yourself three questions this morning, and they're very simple. Number one, how welcome is Jesus in your home? How welcome is Jesus in your home? And I'm not talking about just your physical home, although I am. But how welcome is Jesus in your life? I'm not talking about he, he's welcome in church. I mean, we're all around believers here, and you can have as much of me as you want, Jesus. I'm in church with fellow believers. But how welcome is Jesus in your everyday life? Look at the text. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus who, was, who had been dead, he had raised from the dead. Jesus came to the home of Lazarus in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, simply because, look at me, because he knew he was welcome there. Nobody else really wanted him. They were trying to kill him, but he knew he was welcome there. That was a place that he could go. As Christ followers that are pursuing vibrant walks with Christ, we need to have homes, physically and spiritually, where Jesus is always the unseen guest. It's one thing to live lives in private one way and then live it different publicly. But Jesus wants to always be welcome into our lives. We say he is Lord and Master, but is he Lord and Master of our home? Uh, if he walked into your home and he looked around, are there things you shouldn't see or you wouldn't want him to see? Are there places you wouldn't want him to go? Would he approve of the things you do, the things that entertain you? Is Jesus the one that you call Lord and Master? Is he really Lord and Master of your home? And even beyond that, is he Lord and Master of your life really outside of Sunday? Can he interrupt your life tomorrow? Can, can he stop in and ask for time with you tomorrow when you're busy engaged in the things of the world? Does he really have a right? Does he really have a welcome spot into our lives? Is he really welcome in our lives on a daily basis? Those whose faith is stagnant instead of vibrant don't really welcome Jesus to interrupt their plan. They're good with given Jesus maybe once or twice or three times a month for an hour and 15 minutes on a Saturday night or Sunday, but they're not really all that interested in being interrupted by Jesus on Tuesday when they're at work or Thursday when they're glued to the television and watching something they really want to watch. Not all that interested in Jesus inviting himself into their lives. We fast meals and days and weeks to break the stagnancy, to seek vitality in our lives, to have a life that is always welcome to the presence of Jesus. Can I just challenge you? Listen, folks, um, I, I struggled all last night. These sermons, the, the, this sermon didn't come off all that eloquent last night. I don't know why I woke up thinking it would be eloquent today since it wasn't last night. But, but I just want you to know, there's got to be a change in my life. There's got to be a change in your life 
If we're going to make a difference in our world for Jesus, we've got to welcome him into our lives 24-7. We need to walk with him. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I'm walking in relationship with him. Is Jesus welcome in your home and in your life? Secondly, um, do I honor Jesus from my heart? Does my life really uh, overflow with honoring him? Look at the text again. We'll read it real quickly. They, they made him supper while he was there. And Martha served. Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And, um, and by the way, that doesn't mean that, that Martha served and Lazarus was one of those men that just sat at the table and ate while everybody, I don't think that's what that text means, all right? Uh, in case you're ready to jump all over that one. They made him supper, Martha served, Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him, and Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and, and again, I'm gonna talk about this in a moment, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Each of the three in this story, Mary, Laz, Martha, Lazarus, and Mary, they each had a different disposition, but each of them honored him from their hearts. Martha honored Jesus because she used her gift. She used what she loved to really honor Jesus. We, we have a, a, a companion text in Luke 10. Let me just read you a few verses here. It happened as, this is not the same story. This is another story. It happened as they went that he entered into a certain village and there was this certain woman named Martha, and she invited them into the house. And she had the sister called Mary, who sat at the feet of Jesus and heard his word. But notice this, Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached Jesus and said, hey, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? And tell her to help me. I'd love to have seen that little sibling rivalry. Wouldn't that have been fun to see Martha say, get on, or Mary, Martha, get, get on Mary. And Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things. One thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus isn't rebuking Martha because she served. Jesus is rebuking Martha because she thought the only way to really honor Jesus was to serve or to use her gift. Mary had another way, but Martha's way of serving God was to use her gift, to honor him through what she loved doing, and that was serving. Since it was what she loved and she did it for him, it brought honor to him. Are you, look at me for a moment, are you using your gift, what you love, for him? What you are passionate about, are you using that for him? If you are, you're honoring him. You're burying the gift like the one with one talent did. You're not honoring him with what God has given you. And then there was Lazarus who honored Jesus simply by being with him. He fellowshiped with him. He listened to him, talked to him. Mainly he listened. He did what the psalmist said we should all do. He was still and knew that he was God. Martha's busy serving, honoring him with her gift. Lazarus is sitting and listening to Jesus and being in his presence. And then Mary honored him, maybe even more fully and dramatically, by giving her very best to Jesus. She anointed him with spikenard. And the spikenard was a plant that grew in India. It was worth more. What she gave was worth more than the average person's annual wage. She dumped a year's salary 
on Jesus. She honored him with her very best. She poured it out with unrelenting abandon, the most valuable possession she had. That's how much she loved Jesus and honored him. Are you willing to give your best to him? Your resources, your children, your grandchildren, if God says, I want to take them somewhere where they might not even be safe, are you willing to let them go? Are you willing to to release that which is most precious to you? Are you willing to honor him with your very best? So many struggle even giving their financial resources, even though scripture commands it, but God wants our very best, and Mary honored him by giving her best to Jesus. He gave her best He gave his best for her and us, and she gave her best to him. Mary also honored herself by humbling herself completely. She wiped his feet with her hair. Scripture says a woman's hair is her glory, and she used her glory to wipe the feet of Jesus. What a humble act. She also honored him by worshiping despite the criticism. There's Judas. He's the guy that, that, he's the treasure of the disciples, and And you know what he's going to do with that money. In fact, Scripture says he was ticked off, not because he wanted to really give money to the poor, but because it would have been more for him to dip into. He had done it before. And he said, you should have taken that money and sold it for 300 denarii, and we could have given it to the poor. She worshiped despite the criticism. Everybody look right here for just a moment. Are you willing, really, to serve Jesus wholeheartedly and worship him even if you're criticized, and if you're not in the majority, even if you seem to be kind of the oddball out, are you willing to worship him despite the criticism? And then I love this part. She honored him by filling the room with the fragrance of sincere devotion. Can I just um, pastorally... um, walk through this just a moment. She broke open that vessel. It filled that room with a fragrance. And can I just tell you something? That fragrance was still there the next day. And that was a strong fragrance. What she did didn't just fill the room for a moment. People that would come into that place probably for weeks would smell that and they would say, what is that smell? And they would say, this is when Mary anointed Jesus exuding from that little house was the fragrance of sincere devotion that one act made people recognize the presence of Christ for weeks, maybe months to come. Can I just tell you, we owe it to our world. Look at me, look at me. You can be mad at me if you want, but we owe it to our world to exude the fragrance of Christ and sincere devotion to a world that is hurting, confused, and broken. And we don't do that by fighting ugly and saying ugly things. We do it by walking in the beauty and the presence of Jesus, and our world desperately needs that. No one else will bring that to the table, but the people of God who live their life by faith in the Son of God are those who can exude that fragrance and it will last. Number three, and I'll be done. I'll be done and you'll be glad. How about that? Number three, do I honor Jesus consistently and when the opportunity exists? This is my final thought. 
Chapter 12, verse 7 and 8, look at it. Jesus said to, to Judas, Judas, leave her alone. Quit criticizing her because she has kept this for the day of my burial. She didn't know what she was doing, but Jesus recognizes that prophetically she is anointing him for burial. He understands this is all part of the plan of God. Jesus said to Judas, leave her alone because she has saved this, kept this for the day of my burial. And this is really interesting. For the poor you'll have with you always. But me you're not always going to have. Jesus corrects Judas. He says, tomorrow morning, Judas, when you wake up, and when I wake up, the poor will still be here, but I won't be in this place in this moment. And if she doesn't do this now, she misses the opportunity to do what God has called her to do. The poor are always going to be there. There's always going to be an opportunity to that. But this moment, to anoint the Son of God and to prepare him for burial, this is a moment that will pass and it needs to be seized. Honoring Jesus was not something and should not be something on a calendar reminder. It's something that should be done consistently, but we also need to look, please look at me, we need to look and seize, look for and seize every moment of opportunity. For the hour is coming and now is that they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And today is our opportunity. And the church of Jesus Christ needs to seize this opportunity. This is the moment we need to seize to honor him consistently and to detach from spiritual stagnancy because our world and our church and this county and Jay County do not need churches full of dormant, stagnant Christians. They need churches full of people who are vital in their walk with Christ, who are living their lives by faith in the Son of God, who spoke the world into existence, and who is still, even today, upholding it by the word of his power. Is your life marked by vibrant worship that honors him? Does he get glory from your life? Are you preoccupied with the idea that Jesus needs to be exalted in every facet of my life? That's where God wants us to get. I, can I just tell you, sometimes when I say things like that and when I write things like that, I think, man, I'm so far from that. Can we ever get there? But can, I, I'm just, I'm an idealist still. I am always, I'm gonna die an idealist and an optimist. I believe that we can get to the place where we live our lives by the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, and every moment, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna stumble and fall sometimes, but every moment, before we tweet, before we post, before we say something, we are saying, does this bring honor and glory to Him? Am I exuding the fragrance of Christ? And, and can I just tell you, if the 725 people on average that attend Glad Tidings Church in Muncie would all spend some time on a regular basis fasting and detaching from the world so that we could come become more vital and vibrant in our relationship with Christ, can I tell you there would be some change that would take place in people's hearts. We don't argue them out of it. We point them to Jesus who is the only one who can change and transform people's hearts. Say amen if you believe that. And then stand with me if you would. Let me close with one quick story. 1935, uh, Blasio Kugosi was a school teacher in Rwanda, Central Africa. Was tired of his measly, piddly 
stagnant relationship with Christ. He saw the Christians around him, and he wasn't all that thrilled with their walk with God either, and so he did what um, early church people did. He shut himself in for a week, and he prayed and he fasted in a little college cottage in Rwanda. And after that week, he emerged as a man changed by the Holy Spirit. He confessed his sins to his wife, to his children, to everyone he could find. He went to the school where he taught and he proclaimed Jesus and many of the students and teachers accepted Christ. They were actually called abaka, meaning people on fire. There was something that changed. Shortly after that, he was invited to go to Uganda to share with the Anglican church there and he shared what had happened in his life and he told them about that week that he spent seeking God and what, how it changed him and how it changed his community. And as he uh, told them about it, it led to leaders in the Anglican church repenting. The fire of the Holy Spirit descended on that Anglican church and it started to spread like wildfire and people's lives were changed. Blasio died of fever just a few weeks later. His ministry only lasted just a few short weeks. But the revival fires that were sparked through his ministry swept throughout East Africa and they continue to the present. One of the greatest revivals taking place in the world where people's lives are being changed is still today in Eastern Africa. Hundreds of thousands of lives have been transformed over the decades through this one man who said, I am not satisfied with my walk with God. He was discouraged and he set himself apart to seek God. I just want to encourage you, if you long for intimacy with Christ, to set yourself aside and fill your mind with the things of God, spend time in his presence, detach from the world so that you can detach from a stagnant and dormant faith and enjoy a vibrancy that can only come if we are connected intimately to Jesus. Bow your heads with me if you would please this morning. I want to ask um, a couple of questions just real quickly. I'll only keep you a minute or two. If you're here today and you've never invited Jesus Christ to be your Lord, I'm talking about serving God and you're thinking, Pastor, I don't even know what that means. I've never really given my life to Him. If you're here today and, and you don't know for certain that you are ready to meet Jesus, you don't know for certain that you are a child of God and you want to know that with absolute certainty, would you just slip up a hand right where you're at? I'd love to pray with you. Just right where you are standing, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'd love to pray with you. Anyone in this room that would say, would you pray for me? Anyone in this place? Your head's still bowed in for just a moment. How many would say, Pastor Kevin, I, uh, I want there to be a new vibrancy. In my, don't raise your hand yet, and don't do it just because you think everybody will. But I really want there to be more spiritual vibrancy. I am not satisfied with just punching a card, serving God once a week. I want to live the life that I live by faith in the Son of God. I want to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to walk in spiritual vibrancy every day of my life. How many would raise your hand with me and say, that is really, really 
the desire of my life. Let's worship him as we close and make this your prayer this morning.